in those early days of the space program, the United States could have been first. We actually created this field. We invented it. We did all the fundamental research. We did all the basic developments. We hold most of the firsts in the field. And, and yet we, we kind of took our foot off the gas. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. China's mystery hypersonic launch has continued to dominate the space, business, and defense landscape for a second week here in the United States. And that's in no small part due to what the U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, told Bloomberg Television. In the interview, he confirmed that the U.S. intelligence community and therefore the Department of Defense and the U.S. administration believe that China launched a new hypersonic weapon system sometime in late July. What has really pricked up everyone's ears and focused attentions across the space and defense communities was that Millie says this new weapon system is close to a Sputnik moment. We're going to get into that in just a minute with one of the most knowledgeable hypersonics and hypersonic weapon systems experts and aeronautics engineers, Mark Lewis. And later in this episode, we're going to hear from Sarah Monero of the Center for New American Security and Caitlin Johnson from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. They're going to give us a deeper view into what the U.S. Space Force is doing to meet these challenges. There was a large yet classified meeting this Wednesday between the Space Force and the Defense and Space Industries. And they're going to explain why the new service branch is running into the kind of stiff criticism from congressional appropriators that can be measured in millions of dollars. But first, here is the other big story from space and business this week. Boeing is taking a $185 million write-down on its annual earnings. And that's because of this summer's Starliner test flub. In August, an unmanned test launch of the human-rated space launch and transportation system was indefinitely scrubbed because 13 valves in the propulsion system were stuck in a closed position. This is the second time Boeing has taken a big hit to its bottom line for the Starliner. Software glitches cut short an unmanned test launch in late 2019, and that forced the company to come up with $410 million last year. The Starliner has been underwritten by NASA's Commercial Crew Program. That's the same program that the SpaceX Crew Dragon was developed and now operates. In fact, the SpaceX Crew Dragon service is now considered so reliable This week, the Russian space agency Roscosmos is saying that it wants to buy seats for its cosmonauts going to the International Space Station. SpaceX is set to launch its fourth NASA crewed mission to the ISS early Sunday morning, weather permitting. And you can watch it. NASA is going to start live streaming coverage at 10 p.m. Eastern this Saturday night. Getting back to General Milley's interview and what it means... I spoke with Mark Lewis, an aeronautics and astronautics scientist, and until January of this year, Mark was the Department of Defense's Director of Defense Research and Engineering. And as if that portfolio was not enough, he was also the Acting Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. In English, 
That all means he was the Pentagon's senior most scientist. I'll let Mark explain what he does now. I left DOD in January of 2021. Now I'm at the National Defense Industrial Association. I'm the executive director of a new organization that we stood up called the Emerging Technologies Institute, which is a think tank that's focused on modernization technology, important modernization technologies, specifically for the Department of Defense. You know, today an interview came out from Bloomberg with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Mark Milley, And he said that this recent China hypersonic mystery, and I refer to that because it doesn't seem to be actually confirmed one way or another, whether it was a hypersonic glide vehicle or if it was a missile or if it was a space plane, but he seems to be going down the road that this was a hypersonic glide vehicle capable of carrying a munition of some sort. And he said it was close to a Sputnik moment. I mean, what do you think about all of this? I mean, this is really your specialty. Yeah. So, you know, if you actually, if you read the interview carefully, he doesn't, he doesn't actually say it's a Sputnik moment. Uh, you can tell the reporter was kind of trying to draw him out on that line. And I, I think in that regard, he's got it exactly right. So what do we mean by a Sputnik moment? I think there were two elements to that sort of event. And the first is, is surprise. When the Russians launched Sputnik, it was a big surprise. It was a shock. People were you know, asking, how did they get ahead? But then the second part are, are the events that lead up to it, which is in the case of Sputnik, how did the Russians get ahead? So let me now relate it to some of the activities that we see in, in China in, in hypersonics. In my mind, it's not quite a Sputnik moment because, well, frankly, it's not a surprise. We've been reporting on this. We've been hearing about this. This is an area the intelligence community has done an incredible job of identifying exactly what Chinese and the Russians are doing. The Chinese and the Russians have made it easy. They brag about what they're doing. Vladimir Putin himself talks about what the Russians are, how they've been investing in hypersonics. The Chinese put some of their hypersonic weapons on, on trucks and paraded them in 2019 in a military parade. So they're not exactly being overly secretive about it. But the point is, we actually didn't have a really good understanding of what the Chinese are doing and what they're up to and why they're doing. But now I said there are two parts to a Sputnik moment. The second part, if you look at the history of Sputnik, we could have launched a satellite first and we didn't. And part of it was we had a team of scientists and engineers working in Alabama led by Werner von Braun. They had a rocket all ready to launch a satellite and they weren't allowed to. There was no demand signal. No one would say, hey, we don't have a requirement for a satellite. What would we do with it? And so we, even though we could have gone first, we didn't, the Russians did. And then when the Russians did, then we were in a panic. How do we get something up quickly? That bears some resemblance to what the situation that we see today. Just as in those early days of the space program, the United States could have been first. We actually created this field. We invented it. We did all the fundamental research. We did all the basic developments. We hold most of the firsts in the field. And, and yet we, we kind of took our foot off the gas. And, and one of the reasons is we would encounter the same argument that the rocket team did in the 1950s. What are the requirements? So, you know, we've got no program of record. We don't need to be, be moving forward. And, and, and so we, we created this opportunity for the Chinese with focused, consistent investment to frankly move ahead of us. And so that's the Sputnik-like part of this whole story. So then the question would be, you know, what should we as the United States, as well as our allies, I mean, we have the office agreement, we also have NATO, how do we respond to this? How do we, how do we defend ourselves against such a possible weapon? So 
you know, the very reason that someone pursues hypersonics, is, as your question alludes, is because it's difficult to defend against the hypersonic damage. First, it's, it's difficult to identify, it's difficult to track, and if you can track it and target it, it's difficult, not impossible, but it's difficult to stop. So that's obviously why the Chinese want them, why the Russians want them, why other nations want them. Frankly, it's why we should want them as, as well. I often talk about hypersonics as being the next logical step after stealth. And so with stealth technology, we build systems that are invisible to radar. People can't stop you because they can't see you, but we're losing that advantage. Other people are developing their own stealth capabilities. They're figuring out ways to penetrate ours. So the next step, if they, if they now can see you, well, the next step is you're going fast enough that they can't react in time. And then it's, that it's difficult for them, if they do react, it's difficult to take action. So that's, that's why the United States has been interested in hypersonics and should have been interested in hypersonics. In terms of specifically reacting to an individual test, I don't think that's the right response. We don't respond to a specific test. Instead, what we needed to have, what we, what we now have, I believe, is a focused, integrated, coordinated, whole of Department of Defense approach to developing and delivering hypersonic weapons into the hands of our, our warfighters. An important point that I would make is when we look at our hypersonic systems, we have very different goals than say, when we think the Russians or the Chinese. For one thing, our systems are not nuclear. We're not interested in putting nuclear weapons on hypersonic systems for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is it doesn't give you much of an advantage. For that reason, I think actually our hypersonic systems, some people ask me if it's escalatory, if we'll escalate an arms race. No, actually I think it's de-escalatory. Hypersonics also, I think, allows you to do precision strikes. So you do precision engagements instead of hitting something with a sledgehammer. And again, I think that's an important capability for the United States to have. If anything, the only lesson we take away from the Chinese announcements and developments, Russian work is we're not moving fast enough, that we're in a race to deliver these technologies. And whereas we may have, might have been frankly, a bit arrogant, thinking we had enough of a lead that we were ahead of, you know, we were going to be ahead of the rest of the world and we could kind of take our time. I think if, if, if nothing else, this should be a wake-up call that we are in a race. And whether or not we acknowledge it, the race is already on. And this is a race that we dare not lose. So I don't think we change our strategy, but we change our timelines. We accelerate the rate at which we're delivering systems into the hands of our warfighters. You know, this week, there's a meeting that's being hosted by Space Force and by the Space Warfighting and Analysis Center that has invited the heads of defense and space industry to connect with them to talk about the generation of requirements. And it's been said to me in the past by others within the space industry that they feel like defense really isn't moving fast enough to keep mm -hmm. up with what they're able to actually produce. And so it's kind of like developing things for a problem that hasn't yet even really been identified. And then there's been criticisms on, on both sides, nice criticisms in the sense that they're, they're warmly given, right? You know, they're not working against each other by any means, but there's this meeting this week and I'm kind of wondering what should come out of that meeting? How can we how can we meet that demand that 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 overall strategic requirement to move faster, you know whether it be in hypersonics or hopefully if it's technologically possible to mount a defense against hypersonics? Mm -hmm. How do we get the Department of Defense, the U.S. Space Force, at all, and industry to be able to move faster together? Because that's how we do things here. So, you know, you, you're asking about a problem that we all talk about, we all wring our hands about, which is frankly the, the slow pace of our acquisition system. And 
in large part, it's because we have an acquisition system that's designed not to be fast, not to be efficient, but frankly, to be fair. We have an acquisition design that designs that everyone can contribute. Everyone has an opportunity to bid. Everyone is evaluated fairly. That's great. So democracies are kind of about, but it, it means we're inefficient. We're going up against pure competitors who, you know, can be, you know, dictatorships can be very efficient at moving things quickly. And so that's the challenge that we face. There are, I think, a number of ways to get past that. One is we, we see the creation of a number of organizations within the Department of Defense. The very reason, arguably, for the Space Force is to solve some of the space acquisition problems that we have. But when I was in the Pentagon, we created the Space Development Agency. And their motto is Semper Sidious, uh, which I, I, I joke, it's like Darth Sidious, but, but only nicer. But they're always moving fast. And they have shown that uh, they can go from an announcement of an opportunity to awards in absolutely record time. And they, they're not doing with any new authorities. They're not breaking the law. They're using these existing rules, but they built into the culture of the organization that they're going to go quickly. So it, it makes you realize when you see examples like that, it makes you realize that part of it is our culture. It's the, the culture of how we acquire systems. And the department can learn a lot of lessons from industry, especially, for example, from the software industry. You, know, you look at cycle time, the software industry can be measured in weeks, whereas the department is measuring cycle times of weapons uh, in years and decades. So learning those lessons from industry can be very instructive. At the end of the day, I think, you know, sometimes it takes a wake-up call. I think we're seeing enough wake-up calls now across the board, not, not just in hypersonics, but in artificial intelligence, in biotechnology, in directed energy, in quantum. I, I think there's a general recognition across the government that we need to move faster and we need to change the culture in order to do so. Something that really caught my eye when I came across you and one of the interviews you gave that really made me sit up and take notice and think thoughtfully was strategic technological surprise. Right, right. How do we achieve that strategic technological surprise? Do we have arrows in our quiver that have that now? Or, and if we don't, then what do we need to do to make that happen? So, you know, I, I'm an engineer, I'm not a historian, but I spent a lot of time with historians for, for a number of reasons, not the least which is they're really neat. Also, they, they always get the last word. So you want to be nice to historians because they, they will decide the judgment of history. And I think there are a number of examples from history where we achieved strategic surprise and, and frankly, examples where we didn't and we, we should have. You know, in the, in the first, first category, the introduction of stealth technology in the, in the Gulf Wars over 30 years ago now. That took the whole world by surprise, but it built on technological investments that have been made over decades at the government research laboratories, in industry, also learning from work that was being done around the world. And of course, when we unleashed stealth technology in the world, the whole world basically stood back and, and, and gasped uh, at, the, at the capabilities that we were able to apply. Same thing with precision uh, guided munitions. That was quite an amazing revelation to the world. So we, we have those examples. And in all those, there, there's usually a formula. One of those formulas is you have a few folks who are really devoted to this capability, who understand they're, they're uh, technologically savvy, they're scientifically literate, they understand the value of a given capability, a technology, how it can be useful to the warfighter. And, and they don't take no for an answer. You know, and when we introduced the ICBM fleet, uh, it was, it was uh, really one man, Benny Schriever, who was sort of the guiding force behind that. Now, at the same time, we've had examples where we didn't achieve strategic surprise, and we probably should have. As an aerospace engineer, one of my least favorite of those is, is the airplane. So the United States invents the airplane. Orville and Wilbur invent the airplane. A handful of years later, the United States enters World War I, and we're the only major power that doesn't have airplanes. 
we were flying European airplanes in, in World War One. Now, there are a lot of reasons behind that. Partly, the, the Wright brothers sued everyone who tried to come up with something that looked like their airplane, so they actually dampened the market for, for, for aviation. But still, it was an example where we didn't seize on the technology. We didn't understand the value. We didn't, it didn't spark in, in a way that it did in other parts of the world. Same thing with the gas turbine engine. So, of course, today we take gas turbine engines, jet engines for granted. Well, when uh, American experts were first confronted with the idea of a jet-powered aircraft, they scoffed at it. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences did a report where they said, yeah, there's nothing to this. And so we stopped working on it. And the British and the Germans invested enough and brought it to an operational status. So we have missed the boat. So if I think about what we need to do today, and obviously I can't comment on any specific capabilities because, well, then they wouldn't be a surprise. But in general, I think there are several elements to it. One is we need to constantly be investing. We need to be investing in science. We need to be investing in the government. We need to be working with industry. That is a key element of this. That was Mark Lewis. Now it's time we listen to two experienced experts on how the U.S. Space Force is generating those requirements, collaborating with industry, and working with Congress to get the funding to get it done. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. Hey, Laura. You know, a lot of folks in space and defense already know who you are, but for this audience, could you give us the elevator introduction and tell us who you are and where you've been and where you are now? And for that, you know, let's start with Sarah. Hi, yeah, my name is Sarah Monero. Uh, currently, I'm an adjunct senior fellow for the Center for New American Security. I'm also the Senior Director for Space Strategy at an emerging defense technology company called Anduril Industries. For the past hmm, maybe 15-ish years, I've been bouncing around the DoD and uh, intelligence community uh, doing space, missile defense, nuclear hypersonics policy. Uh, just your all-around, you know, space nerd out there in the ecosystem. Hey, space nerd out there in the ecosystem, didn't you also spend some time up on the hill? I did. Um, I had the pleasure of serving on the House Armed Services Committee while we were doing a little thing like helping to establish the Space Force and reestablish Space Command. And that was a phenomenal opportunity that is hopefully bearing fruit uh, through the Department of Defense and the commercial industry as well. And Caitlin, let us know who you are. Uh, sure. So my name is Caitlin Johnson. I am the Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project at CSIS, or the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I've been there for quite a few years, and in this role, I also uh, host a podcast called Tech Unmanned, which focuses on the intersection of emerging technology and policy in the national security space. And so I think this conversation will kind of bring all of these pieces together. And I'm really excited to hear what Sarah has to say in particular. Yeah, me too, I have to admit. So let's get down to it. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff tells Bloomberg that the mystery Chinese hypersonic glide vehicle, possibly capable of carrying a warhead, was close to a Sputnik moment. And I'm underlining that he said it was close to, not one, but close to a Sputnik moment and that it actually has the DOD's full attention. That seems to me to be a confirmation of how the U.S. sees it. Now, what do you guys think about this? Is this Sputnik-esque? And why would General Mark Milley say this now? Sarah, you want to tackle this first? Yeah, sure. Um, 
So I think what's interesting here is if you know General Milley, he is very plain spoken. He is known as being a real warrior scholar, and he clearly chose his words very carefully because he understands both the visceral emotional kind of impact of labeling something a Sputnik moment, but also wants to be able to signal the strategic importance of us being able to see and clearly identify how important these kinds of technologies are and how important it is for us as a nation to avoid the strategic surprise of the development of these kinds of weapons. I think what's important here is to notice that what he says and how he says it impacts not only a war fighting and operational perspective about the nature of high technology in a global strategic competition with China, but also has to be reflected in the policymaking and programs that the DOD is choosing to pursue and fund right now. So for uh, the US, it's thinking about how is the US hypersonic development program going? How has it been funded historically? How is it going to be funded in the future? And I think one of the big glaring challenges that the DOD has not really explored uh, in a tremendous amount of detail yet is how do we defend against hypersonic threats? So looking at this from multiple angles and multiple dimensions, not just the testing of a new weapon system, what that means operationally to the warfighter on the ground, but also programmatically and budgetary wise, you know, how that gets reflected through the priorities of this administration's new budget and, uh, and programs. Kaylin. Yeah. I just, to add on to that, I think when I first heard about the FOBS test, you know, I think I was pretty skeptical because there wasn't a lot of clear data behind it or, um, facts directly from the source. I mean, these, these kinds of things are, are kept highly classified, but General Milley's statement has, I think, elevated it a little bit in, in seriousness and and how the department and how the American people should think about the test itself and our strategic posture against these types of emerging technologies. I think Sarah hit it quite on the spot. It's not just about what do we have in you know equilibrium here with our hypersonic weapons development, but also how can we defend against these. And a lot of that is is part of our space architecture. And so as we see the new budget come out and the Space Force really, you know, continue to take shape, how they posture them, themselves against these types of threats will kind of give us an indication of um, how far along China may be or how seriously the department is taking uh, the threat itself. So, you know, you know, speaking about defenses and, you know, how the U.S. is going to mount a defense, because at present, my understanding is, is that we don't really have a defense against uh, a hypersonic glide vehicle that might be equipped with a warhead of any kind. Here on Wednesday, uh, the U.S. Space Force and the Space Warfighting Analysis Center had a meeting with a reported 180 companies and that this six-hour meeting was classified, but it's been reported that the Space Force shared threat analysis 
to better focus industry's efforts before an acquisition requirement is published. Now, the point is to speed up the development and space acquisition process, but, you know, and to field tools needed for a modern missile defense and the defense of space assets, including commercial space assets. What are you guys hearing about the meeting? You know, was it useful? Yes? No? Maybe? Caitlin, what do you got? Um, Well, I haven't really heard too much directly about the meeting itself, but in the spirit of sharing with industry, this has been incredibly well-received and something that I think the Space Force has been very careful about, which is to better engage industry and partners, as well as kind of declassify or share more information with trusted partners and the public. And that's something that Uh, Congress was very focused on when they established the Space Force, and so it's good to see the news service taking that seriously, but also that it, you know, hopefully will help the end game, which is the uh, acquisition process and requirements process. If companies can better understand what their system is supposed to be defending against, this is kind of just feels a little logical, then they can submit better proposals and have a better understanding of what kind of scenarios or cases that their system might be used or attacked or used as a defense. I'm kind of rambling, but it, it will definitely, I think, speed it up, which has also been a really big priority for the Space Force and for Congress. And so it's a good first step. Hey, Sarah. Also part of the reporting that was in the run-up to this that the SWAC is supposedly also fielding some sort of digital platform to actually speed this up. Is that digital platform actually up and running? What are you hearing? What do you think of the meeting? And again, good, bad, yes, no, maybe? So as a true policy nerd, it's the answer is always it depends. But I think what's important here, and Caitlin, just to pull this thread that Caitlin started that is very prescient, as Congress was standing up the Space Force, one of the things that now Ranking Member Mike Rogers and the Chairman of the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, Jim Cooper, really engaged with the Department of Defense about was how to make the threat data that really talks about how possibly or potentially vulnerable kind of our advantages that we derive from space-based capabilities, how threatened they are by the development and the technology development of specifically Russia and China as near-peer competitors, but also the worldwide kind of counter-space threat trends. And there's a couple of really fascinating intelligence community reports. Caitlin's organization at CSIS does a fantastic yearly roundup of unclassified threat data, and that is tremendously important and has been an important narrative that Congress has been very supportive of as we go through and we build a budget that uh, supports programs that will ensure our continued exploitation of space-derived data for national security purposes. So in the spirit of that, sharing threat models, sharing kind of expectations of where they think that threat is right now and may be going is very important. Doing that with a wide range of companies quantitatively, you know, 180 companies is great. Um, I would like to make sure that, you know, 
everything there, that, that space industrial base is fundamentally different now than it was 15 to 20 years ago with the entry of more service-based kinds of models and providers that aren't strictly just hardware-based. And so making sure that those companies span that gamut of what the new space industrial complex is and is growing into is important. Organizations like the SWAC have existed for years now in the space community. And the one thread that they seem to have is that they end up being responsible for uh, next generation architectures, for future requirements. And I think that is really an important point for the Space Force to focus on as they continue to address Congress's concerns regarding acquisition reform, regarding the unique requirements of space that are being pushed by commercial industry, but are also being developed in recognition of this emerging threat capability as well. So I think this is a good first step. I think there are probably several other steps that follow afterwards that probably need to reflect not only the threat picture and the architecture, but the programmatics and the budgetary support as well. For what's coming in the future, because there is so much militarization going on in regards to space and how we approach space. It's a domain. China's sending up, you know, what might be a satellite servicing craft and it might not be, you know, we don't really know. So I'm wondering if now, you know, you said industry has changed, if actually the DOD and how it's approaching this has also changed because the SWAC is no longer just really future. It is kind of now as as other organizations within the DOD should be as well. At least this is just me thinking out loud. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that this iteration of this kind of an organization, the SWAC, is actually very new. Right. And so if you talk to General Raymond, if you talk to the people that are in the SWAC, they will acknowledge that as an organization, they were basically born this year. Organizations like the SWAC have had this kind of a role or responsibility within the defense and the IC space community for a long time. And I think that that still holds very true, right, that they've had various organizations that have tried to kind of come up with current and future defense space architectures. And the challenge with all of those organizations is that it never really fully transitioned into recognizing those new architectures or architectural approaches. It was never kind of planned and budgeted for that way. So what we ended up doing is carrying a lot of the legacy uh, architecture and baggage that comes with that. What I hold a lot of hope for is the fact that this iteration of an architecturally focused and physics-based modeling organization that is rooted in the recognition of the threat that we are seeing from strategic competitors is coming at a really fascinating inflection point for the DoD space community where Congress is super eager to hear about and support acquisition reform tailored to the specific requirements and industrial-based capacity for the new emerging space ecosystem. And so they have a real opportunity to not just do studies and physics and architectural models and platforms, but they have a real opportunity to help be the success story for the Space Force in how they are instantiating acquisition reform from the bottom up. 
And that's what I would love to see the SWAC be able to do for themselves. Let me turn to you, Caitlin, real quick. You know, what are the current threats in space? And what do you think are the future ones that the SWAC, as well as Congress, as well as the rest of us here who are watching, should really keep front and center? Like, I don't know, what are your top two, three? Oh, that's a hard question to answer. There's a collection of counter space weapons that are being invested in and developed by Russia. China, we've seen instances of counter space capabilities being used around the world, including Iran, North Korea. Um, France has talked about building bodyguard satellites that have a potential shootback system on them. The real challenge, I think, and, and Sarah alluded to this earlier, is that there are a lot of these systems that we call their dual use. And so they both have a military and non military purpose. And on orbit servicing assembly and manufacturing is a great example of this. If you have a satellite with a robotic arm that is intended to be used to service a satellite on orbit, that intent is what really marks the difference between is this satellite a commercial or civil capability or is this satellite a weapon? Because then, you know, the intent could be instead of servicing a satellite, using it to disrupt, destroy, or damage an adversary satellite on orbit. And so space has a really unique challenge in figuring some of these harder questions out. And I don't think we can do that internally to the United States alone. We need to have these conversations with our allies and partners in space, especially those that might not be our traditional allies and partners. Japan, for example, you know, is not in the five eyes, but has an incredible growing space uh, security program and is really investing in their capabilities. And so we need to start working through these future threats uh, together and, and also understanding how maybe our competitors see threatening actions and behaviors in space as well. And speaking of the future, the Senate Appropriations Committee this week, it was reported that they cut the Space Force ask of $2.4 billion. They took out about $343 million from the Next Generation Overhead Persistent Infrared Missile Warning Satellite Program. And yes, I'm spelling it out because there is an acronym which you are more than welcome to use from this point onward, but I wanted to make sure that everyone understood this is actually what we're talking about and the total for the whole program from, you know, beginning from idea to, to deployment is supposed to be $14.4 billion. But on both sides of the hill, there is skepticism and it's fighting into that bottom line. You know, what's up with this? And, you know, Sarah, you worked on the hill. What do you say? What's going on? Well, to be clear, I worked on the House side. So I'm what they affectionately refer to as a hill rat, which I have been told is not condescending at all and is a celebration of being from the people's house, which I wholly embrace. That being said, I had a great and fantastic and productive relationship with my Senate counterparts, both on the appropriations and the authorizing committees. And those are real professionals up there that really are looking not only at the programmatic goals and the military requirements of these programs, but are also looking at how the services are budgeting for and planning and executing that budget. And so one of the interesting things about next-gen OPIR is that it was designated early on as one of these 804 kind of rapid acquisition, middle-tier acquisition programs. And the goal of that was to be able to 
move a lot of the acquisition decisions, a lot of the kind of rote paperwork that ends up having to go through the standard DOD acquisition process, kind of move that to the left while you're prototyping, and then being able to produce those prototypes, iterate on those, and push those out to the end customer on an expedited timeframe. The challenge with pulling that timeline to the left is that it doesn't always come with all of the resources being pulled to the left as well. And so what you see on the Hill with the authorizers, with the appropriators, both of them have consistently had challenges specifically with the next gen OPIR program being an 804 program was not you know, the fact that they, they wanted to delay the program or they thought that there was a lot of smoke and mirrors there, but they thought that pulling it to the left, while it wasn't resourced to be expedited that way, caused additional budgetary stress that was unplanned for, right? It required, if you were gonna deliver stuff or require that the customers deliver things earlier, then they're gonna to wanna to be paid earlier, which means that you have to back your budget process up earlier. And our budget process is not so flexible as to be able to, you know, double a program budget in 90 days. It doesn't happen, right? Like, there's a reason that Congress has such laborious oversight of the execution of these programs that are multi-billion dollar, multi-year programs. And so there's always this tension in these kinds of programs, in 804 programs, in, in programs where you have an operational requirement and timeline, but you're trying to make sure that you outpace that by pulling your deliverables to the left, there's always a tension that exists between the legitimate oversight roles of Congress, the ability to plan and fund on the cycle that the DOD wants, and the rigor of the budget execution process. And I think the next gen OPIR program, the tension and specifically the language that you're seeing come from both House and Senate side appropriators really gives testament to that kind of very natural policy tension that needs to be actively addressed by the Space Force. So, Caitlin, what do you think the Space Force can say? Because I, I saw from the Senate side that the Senate really wants things to be in budget lines and to be really clearly stated that this money is going to this, this money is going to that. You know, is Space Force going to be able to come up with this? Or I suppose they better if they're going to get the money. But, you know, what gives? You know, Space Force is full of smart people. Yeah, I think it's it's all push and pull, you know. I understand Congress's perspective of wanting to have that traditional oversight and really understanding where the taxpayer dollars are going, especially with some of these massive space programs that we are going to be incredibly dependent upon for, you know, our future security and for the next couple decades, really. And at the same time, I think Space Force is trying to embrace the uh, move fast and be flexible kind of ethos that they're trying to build. And I think you're kind of seeing this come to a head right now of Space Force wants maybe the flexibility to move money around within the program as, uh, as they feel that they need it. But Congress is not fully trusting that, you know, that is a great solution. And so I think there will continue to be a lot of deliberations between Congress and the Space Force, hopefully, you know, they'll come to a decision and, and be able to work something out. But I think these kind of natural uh, tensions have, have arisen he here specifically. 
Thank you so much for that. And that's all the time that we've got. I want to thank both you, Caitlin, and you, Sarah, for giving us your time. And I hope to be able to have both of you back very soon. Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. Yep. That's the end of this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to come back next week for the latest in space, business, and defense. Before I go, I'd like to thank Vago Maradian, the Defense and Aerospace Reports editor, for making the Downlink podcast possible, and Chris Cirello, who is the producer for all of the DefAero Report podcasts. You can subscribe to the Downlink on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Or you can sign up for my weekly newsletter on Substack, which carries the podcast as well. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.